I will take you with me. You might learn something. About soccer? Nah, mate. Not about soccer. And for fuck's sake, stop saying soccer. If you catch a glimpse of lifestyle trends on TV, on Instagram, or in the supermarket checkout lane, you will know that Scandinavia has been all the rage for a while in the US. Any good vision, say an egalitarian, happy society, or a cozy living room, or a healthy diet, wrap it up, write Scandinavian or Nordic on it, and it will probably sell. Consider this just a random magazine quote. Logum is a Swedish term roughly translated to not too little, not too much, just right, the experts at Swedish cider brand Recorderlik tell us. Logum encourages us to create a happy life by choosing to live a balanced and fruitful existence. Or this tourist ad. Stockholm is beautiful, clean and easy to explore. It's stylish and sophisticated with impressive buildings, grand boulevards, cozy cafes, charming alleyways and relaxing green spaces. But this is the assistant professor of football. Welcome, by the way. So we should also consider this newspaper report from August 2022. Chaotic scenes erupted at a Stockholm stadium when supporters turned violent against one another after Sunday's football match. Shortly after the first whistle, supporters of Aiko and Hammarby attacked each other and started violence and a massive fire at the arena. Many involved were hooded and masked, and pyrotechnics were thrown in both directions after Stockholm's game between Aiko and Hammarby resulted in 2-2. Well, it's not news, of course, that mingling with soccer supporters can shatter the cliches one has of a city. In Stockholm, the situation is particularly interesting. For one, there's a seeming contrast between Sweden's self-understanding as moderate and balanced and happy and consensus-oriented, and heated soccer rivalries, on the other hand. And heated they are, quite literally. For some video footage, please go to the show notes for this episode. It's also particularly interesting because Stockholm doesn't just have two teams in the top tier, but three rivalries, one of the very few big European cities to do so. And it's particularly interesting to me because, full disclosure, I really like Sweden. I have since I was in high school and learned the language during my otherwise wasted time in the Austrian military. And I've been to Sweden numerous times, next time again in May, God willing. But even I, well, that sounds presumptuous. I mean, even I, who's pretty interested, haven't always been able to grasp Stockholm's soccer landscape. Victor Asp is my guest for this episode. He's a soccer journalist from Stockholm and just a very, very astute mind in analyzing the darker side, but also the more fanatic side of his home city. You're in for a rare and entertaining tour through what makes each of Stockholm's three big clubs so distinct but also what makes Sweden different from what you might have thought it was and what it would be like to visit a game day there. So I think you're in for an unusual city tour, and if you enjoy this kind of soccer coverage, please spread the word. Uh, retreats are much appreciated, word of mouth even more. And if you want to make it really easy on yourself, please give the show some stars, preferably five, on the podcast platform of your choice. There are a lot of subscribers I see on Spotify and Apple who haven't done so yet, and I would really appreciate it. It's just the best way for what I do here to find other intelligent and curious soccer fans just like you. Thank you so much. 
Now on to the very north of Europe, to Stockholm. Welcome, Victor. Thank you for being here as the visiting professor today. Could you give us a brief lay of the land of who you are, what you do, and how we are going to talk about soccer culture in Sweden's capital, in Stockholm, today? Hi, Philip. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, my name is Victor Asp. I work as a football journalist, currently employed at Football Stockholm, uh, which has a self-explanatory name. We're an independent digital publication, and we cover the football in Stockholm. And Stockholm is a city, it's the capital city of Sweden, with a quite big football tradition. And next season they will be represented by four teams, AIK, Djurgården, Hammarby and Bromma Pojkarna. But I think it's for the best for this episode to focus on the three first mentioned teams. Um, because AIK, Djurgården and Hammarby are the only clubs really from Stockholm to have established themselves in longer periods in the top flight, Allsvenskan. And this has caused them to gain a broad following, all three of them. And this makes them relevant from a sociological and historical point of view. So if you want to understand like uh, what Stockholm is like as a city and how football influences Swedish society and what role it plays, I think it's for the best to focus on AIK, Djurgården and Hammarby. All right, so for the untrained ear here, I need to get used to Swedish again here. Uh, it's AIK, which is spelled A-I-K, Stockholm. Djurgården, which is spelled D-J-U-R, and then the garden, and Hammarby, that is Hamar, similar to the hammer, just an A, instead of the E at the end here, and B, the Swedish word for town, B-Y, at the end. Those three teams we want to focus on, right? How do we differentiate between those three teams in one city? Uh, what sets them apart, culturally, I mean, more than just in athletic success? And I think it's also quite productive to summarize these three clubs or introduce them perhaps uh, by their stereotypes and then we'll go into more nuances and if we start with alphabetical order um AIK or AIK it's an acronym which stands for the public sports club or the general sports club uh, general in the sense that they are a multi-sports association they play different sports than football and public in the sense that they are an a public club they are open to the grand public and everyone should be welcome and if you are like an averagely football interested swede you would probably see aik first and foremost as a um a very established clubs they have been in allsvenskan for the biggest part of their history they only been relegated four times i think uh have won the championship 12 times so they're very established they have a broad support and i think like To the average person, they would be seen as a symbol of Stockholm as the seat of Sweden's central power. Um, they've shared the national stadium with the national team since 1937. Uh, they even have their headquarters in the same building as the Swedish Football Association. And they are just like a big and established club. And you would also recognize Aiko, I think, as not a threatening, that's too strong of a word, but like aggressive and proud club. They have a very like confident and confrontational rhetoric. I remember one PR campaign in which they promoted the top flight, Allsvenskan, as AIK versus not AIK. So they just like published the match schedule for the season and all the games were just, just read AIK versus not AIK, um, which is, you know, <laughs> very confident and almost like confrontational uh, with the whole of Swedish football establishment.
And then we have Djurgården who play in blue stripes and they're also seen I think as like an established side. They equal AIK in the number of championships won. They are currently very good and I think like to they I think they have some players who might be known to a broader audience. They had a very successful period in the early 2000s with Kim Schellström, for example, played for various French teams who might be known to like people who don't know much about Swedish football. If you're like averagely interested in football, I think you would probably identify you as a posh team uh, if you're from Sweden. And like it's these are stereotypes, these are cliches. I think it's for the best to nuance them later on. But this reputation of Jurgen as an upper class team, as a posh team has some merit. They played in the Olympic Stadium for a long time, which is located in Östermalm. And I think the best way to describe Östermalm, it's, you have to say it's synonymous with the country's upper class. It's like, I don't know, Kensington in London or like Neuilly-sur-Seine in Paris. You just say the names of these neighborhoods and if you know the if you know the country, if you know the culture, you just get a posh feeling in your whole body. Östermalm has the same ring to it, to the average Swedes heirs as Kensington or Neuilly-sur-Seine. And this is where Jürgen has played for a long time. Aik and Jürgen are also known as the twin clubs. Uh, they were founded in the same year, just some months after each other, sorry, um, in the same neighborhood. And they have had equal sporting success, I would say. 12 championships, one each. And if you refer to the Stockholm Derby, there are multiple Stockholm Derbys, as there are multiple clubs. But if you refer to the Stockholm Derby, you would probably think of this game. third team which is relevant to this episode uh, which is Hammarby uh, a team playing green and white and are the only team in the top flight who are historically located in southern Stockholm and this geographical distinction is quite important because if you look at the map of Stockholm you will be struck by how present water is like neighborhoods are literal islands so when you change neighborhoods in the city um, you just can't miss it and given that the historical neighbor of Stockholm the old town uh, it's located directly in the middle. The north-south divide is very present. Um, so Hamburg has had historically the southern parts of the town to themselves, which kind of shapes their self-understanding. Aik and Jürgen see themselves as a team representing Stockholm as a whole, whereas Hamburg are more content with being a local team representing just southern Malm and its southern suburbia um, and not Stockholm as you know, the whole capital city. So I think that's like the overview, um, and like Hammarby, if you're an, if you're averagely interested in football, you would see Hammarby as like, I don't know, the cult team maybe in Stockholm. Um, they are notorious underachievers, only having won one championship and one cup to Aik and Jurgårdens twelve each. So they are underachievers historically, and they are also known for like having a loyal end large support which makes them quite interesting they are like both cult and mainstream um they are cult in the sense that they are like the name has a ring to it and uh, there are a lot of like myths and perceptions and ideas of this team but they also have a very large following which has increased a lot in size in the last years so they are curiously both mainstream and cult i would say 
So that's like a quick summary of the teams and like how they relate to each other. And then we can go into more details perhaps later on uh, regarding the history and identity and self-perception of each. While we have all three of these clubs in view, could you take us to a game day a little bit? I mean, any simple quick YouTube search will reveal that the fan cultures in Stockholm, in terms of the looks and the feels and the tunes, bear remarkable similarities to what you would see in Germany or in France. These groups have, if you look closely, some of their own style, but in terms of flags and flares and in terms of what you hear, this is mainstream of European ultra fan culture, which came of age 70s and 80s in Italy and spreads throughout Europe and is what we're accustomed to from many European stadiums. How did that type of fan culture um, make its way to Sweden and how is it appropriated by these three clubs? And how does it look like on a derby day? What would we see in a stadium and, and on the way to the stadium if we were to travel to Stockholm with you to a derby? I think if you would go and watch a regular game of any team in Stockholm, you would describe the atmosphere and the aesthetics and functionings of the terraces as ultra-inspired. It's definitely not British-inspired anymore, which um, is, you know, logical given the fact that the Premier League uh, since the mid-90s and onwards has kind of like killed um, killed terrace culture in the top fight in England at least. Um, so, like, I would go as far as saying that from 2000 onwards, British football culture has kind of lost its relevance as a point of inspiration for Swedish supporters. Instead, you have like these uh, these big choreographies, you have these courtios uh, to the games, um, you have um, this uh, mel melodic chanting that goes on for the whole for the whole game with songs that don't always reference what happens on the pitch. Um, all Stockholm teams have established ultra groups who act like, I don't know, um, like the dirigents of the orchestra. Uh, it's not a situation as in Italy where an ultra group can have like thousands of members. There are smaller entities in Sweden and they, um, yeah, they have, uh, they really make their mark. And I think it's like, uh, I think it's a natural development, um, in the 90s and maybe even in the like uh, first decade of the, of the 2000s, I think it's safe to say that the British like fan slash hooligan culture was maybe more inspirational in Sweden. Um, but that's a culture that uh, that is very close to a lot to a lot of people. If you're a, to be a hooligan, you have to be uh, violent. You often have to be a man. You have to be macho, and this is not uh, yeah not all people who want to dedicate themselves to football culture fall into these categories and are perhaps more attracted to, um, to yeah, an ultra, uh, style, style of supportership, which is more accessible. Um, so yeah, if you go to football game in Stockholm, you will see these, uh, you will see these big terraces populated by people who chant together, who sing together, who uh, sing songs that are not in direct reference to the development on the pitch. 
you will see a lot of banners, a lot of flags. Uh, it will be this kind of like European, you know, um, continental football culture, supporter-wise. Right, and that's what I've observed as well whenever I was in the country. What I could never quite put together in a seamless way is that Sweden's self-understanding, and certainly the perception of Sweden abroad as well, is that of a very hmm, consensus-driven country and, and a country that really values the middle ground um, and that values moderation in all things. Ultraculture, as it stems from Italy in the 1970s, 80s, and then spreads throughout Europe, is by its very nature an excessive subculture, right? It's a provocative subculture in terms of optic, in terms of the, the words used, chants used. How does that square together? Do, should we adjust our picture of Sweden a little bit in order to fit ultras in? Um, or is there a particular kind of flavor to Swedish soccer support that matches with the cliches we might have in our minds about Scandinavia and about Sweden in particular? What's very important to understand is that um, Sweden is a country that's very shaped by, like, you know, I mentioned the culture of consensus. Uh, it's been ruled by the Social Democratic Party for, um, I think they had 40 years um, uh, without interruption. So, you know, if... I could like just say something about what I think it's like important to understand about Stockholm uh, as a city in Sweden as a country is that uh, and now we can go on tape. Like I think I mentioned, Sweden is a very centralized country. Um, it's a country where almost everything, um, you know, um, uh, like like all all centers of the, the center of influence is very much Stockholm. It's a centralized country yep. in the same way that maybe France is centralized or mm -hmm. uh, Spain is. Um, and there is like this, you know, um, there is this view of Stockholm um, from the outside as a beautiful city, but as a city where uh, nothing, um, nothing of human value uh, is made. I think it's, it's obvious when you read like novels uh, from the mid uh, 20th, 21st century or mid, uh, when, from the 20th century that describes Stockholm. And so Stockholm is almost always portrayed in a negative light. Like if you read the um, uh, the novel series, uh, no, uh, novels about a crime, uh, which was the um, marked the birth of the Scandinavian noir genre, uh, Stockholm is described as this a uh, cold, inhumane place uh, where people are stressed, where everything is dirty, uh, where criminality has, uh, like, uh, uh, where criminality is very present. Um, and you struggle to see uh, things in, you, you really struggle to see positive portrayals of, of Stockholm in, like, pop culture uh, in the 21st century. Um, and I think it's like, you know, it comes down to Sweden being a country um, which has had its, you know, problems with the concept of urban living as the ideal. Um, when the the Social Democrats famously ruled Sweden for like forty years, forty years uninterrupted, and when the right managed to win win back um, power, uh, win back government in nineteen seventy six, if I'm not mistaken. It didn't do it on like a conservative or like fiscally conservative platform. They did it on the like on the agricultural right platform, um, like the right platform uh, that won um, 
um, the right uh, the power in the in the 70s was a platform that was skeptical not of like the welfare state or um you know civil rights it was skeptical about administration bureaucracy and urbanism and i, I realized this will probably be pretty alien for uh, the american listeners but stockholm as a capital city it's a capital city that is uncontested but yet has uh, bad self uh, self confidence which you know it's it's apparent in like the depictions even later on in the in a scientific report uh, called Stockholm International Guy Erling writes about Stockholm that it's uh, a bright neon light in the dark nordic night um it's a city of endless celebrations around Stureplan and the posh areas this in a country where people struggle to make ends meet in their dying homelands it's a city of endless cheek kissing in a culture where a grumpy head shake is the warmest display of, uh, display of affection Stockholm is enchanting, attractive, and repulsive. Like it's uh, it's a city that has like you know, um, almost like a schizophrenic self view, and as it's very much the the center of of the country, but still it's it's too urban, um, it's too right wing, it's too hectic um, for people to perceive it as really humane. And I think this, like, if you read uh, Karina Ramqvist, which is one of the best uh, authors portraying Stockholm, in my opinion, when she writes about uh, Stockholm in the 90s, uh, there's an excerpt I could read to you from her novel, uh, Alltings Burjan, which translates to the the beginning of everything. It's a coming-of-age novel. Yeah, please. We return to the topic of discussion, the usual whining about not only the absent underground clubs, but about all other cool diversions that our city lacks. That wouldn't work here, is Pelle's usual response when someone suggests a new kind of bar or club that should open here. Here, in this godforsaken city, in this cold, small, uncivilized part of the world, only the most basic things seem to work, and barely that is his judgment. This is a shithole that wants to seem continental and cool and tough, but the truth is, it's not even on the world map. No one would give a damn if the islands it lies on were to sink to sink into the ocean. So it's, you know, it's a, um, it's a city with curiously bad self-confidence, which I think comes down to mainly the fact that Sweden for such a long time, for such a big part of the 20th century was ruled by uh, the social democratic party, um, which, uh, came under a lot of criticism for, um, you know, uh, ill-thought-out urbanism, uh, for not being respectful of traditional architecture, for creating a society where people had their material needs fulfilled, but not um, their cultural needs. And I think this nothing, uh, this criticism, whatever you think about it, uh, is never as easily perceived as in big cities, for which Stockholm is the best example. Um so it's it's kind of curious. It's a it's a weird capital in the sense that it is uncontested, but has has bad had has bad self confidence for a long time. And I think the way uh, this is relevant to football is that it creates kind of a self image uh, among people from Stockholm that this city is what matters in Sweden, and the general interest of the rest of the country 
is not really there. You know, uh, the, the capital is too different from the country in general to actually um, to bridge the gap. And I think this creates like the interest for the Derby games. This is the reason why the Stockholm teams find their biggest enemies and um, can muster the biggest animosities in Stockholm at their home ground, rather than having rivalries with teams from other other cities in Sweden. That's fascinating. And it's a great example, too, of how soccer football culture can open up a view on a country that is very different from a superficial view from abroad. I think many Americans still suffer from this image that everything's Scandinavian is, is cozy and comfortable and soft and candlelit. And you gave us, and I think soccer gives us a very different portrait of the city and, and this culture. That's great. Credit where credit is due, that was Kind Sight, which is a Danish band. But the title of the song is Swedish Punk. As promised, a little bit more on each club, perhaps, and what makes their identity peculiar and what sets them apart. And we should probably start with Aiko uh, again, the Almena Idrottsklubben, the public sports club. What about them? So if we start off with Aiko, they are founded in 1891 as a multi-sports association and five years later played the first football game in Stockholm. And they quite quickly established themselves as kind of front runners in the development of football in Stockholm, because just nine years after the club was founded, um, they win the Swedish championship and defend the title the next year. And as they go into the 20th century, they become quite quickly an established side, and they establish also close ties with the country's elite, with like the royal family, various businessmen, even politicians. And this should come to no surprise, because during the first four decades of the 20th century, Aiko are the only Stockholm team to play consistently in the top flight and reach good results. From 1900 to 1951, they play every season in the top flight, and they begin drawing early on the biggest crowds of Sweden. And around this time, you can see a kind of like club culture emerging around Aiko. They become the first team that has a mass production and mass selling of souvenirs. In 1930, you can buy Aiko themed confectionery. You can buy Aiko-themed clothing, flags. You can even buy music boxes that play the official club songs. And with this popularity comes, of course, a presence in like popular culture. They are quite frequently referred to in uh, theater shows and even movies. And they, due to these uh, large attendances and big gate receipts, um, they manage to like circumvent the major rules of Swedish football and become like a, I don't know how to put it, um, not a semi-professional club even, but a club that has the opportunity to provide players a kind of like pleasant lifestyle. Um, it is, um, it's known that they managed to like get day jobs in uh, various like department stores for their players during the 1920s. Um, they provided like the opportunity to go and eat out in restaurants, wear stylish clothes and so on. So it was quite glamorous lifestyle to be an Aiko player in the 1920s and 30s, even though you weren't a professional. And there's a quote I found in a great book called Spela football bon jävlar, which if you read Swedish is like one of the, no, it is the best um, book on the cultural history of Swedish football. 
And the quote is about the Arco players returning to the Stockholm Central Station from an away game in the 1930s. And it reads like, you could have thought it was Maurice Chevalier, Carl Brisson or Charlie Chaplin arriving. But in fact, it's this Arco team because everything's so glamorous around them. Um, they become known as the Guld Kantade, the, the club with a golden lining. And with this, of course, comes kind of like the ties to the central authority, central power in Stockholm. Um, they also have close ties to the Football Association. Um, the first president of it is a member of ARCO as well. And like, so they develop early on this kind of like status as a glamorous and established club. Um, and they play at the Stockholm Olympic Stadium uh, located in Östermalm, Stockholm's posh district. Wait, so that sounds like a big club, but also a posh club. They now play in a working class neighborhood in the north of town, as you've already told us. Something like important happens when they change stadiums, because in 1937 they moved to a stadium called Roasunda, which is the home ground of the national team. And the stadium is partly built with money Aiko lent to the FA, which kind of like underlines just how established they are. Um, the dynamic that the football association has to ask Aiko for help, uh, not the other way around. And Rosunda as a neighborhood is very different from uh, from the Östermalm uh, in which the Olympic Stadium is located. It's it's a very working class, um, like social democrat neighborhood. Um, and there I could begin to develop ties to the labor movement as well. For example, it's known that they had an orchestra that played at the games, which sounds glamorous. Uh, but this orchestra was in fact the Stockholm Workers Orchestra, which was linked to the Social Democrat Party. Um, they played a friendly game against the Metal Workers Union in 1941, uh, from which the gate receipts went to the union, who was at the time on strike. Um, they also had ties to like the labor movement's assurance company and the labor movement's national chain of grocery stores. So in the mid of the 20th century, they become like this multifaceted club. And this reputation and image has been like enhanced from then onwards. Aikoa pioneered the uh, like organized supporter movement in 1981 um, when their supporters organized um, under the name Black Army, which was of course taken from the uh, from the Manchester United's Red Army, uh, and they kind of like added this you know another but provocative um, youth culture layer to the club. Uh, I had read one quote from another book about Swedish football history um, that says that uh, it's a quote given by one of the people who were active in the development of the terrorist culture in Arco in the 80s, who said it wasn't unusual to see Arco scarves at the May Day parades um, in the anarchists, uh, in the anarchist May Day parades. And 10 years later, the same person states that um, in the 1990s, when um, the Swedish society turned uh, like had a pendulum swing to the right. It wasn't unusual to see people uh, in skinhead clothing or making like Nazi salutes at Arco games as well. So I think it's not like you shouldn't overanalyze the political like meaning of this, but just state that uh, they they've had a terrorist culture that's very like big on provoking and. Um, yeah, just being as provocative as possible and get as much, much attention as possible. Um, at the same time, like um, being a, being a place that's that strives to be welcome to everybody or welcoming to everybody. And it's also interesting, like if you look today, if you go to an Aiko game, uh, it's like going to a supermarket, as one Aiko supporter once put it. Like 
you're just like you're just uh, in the midst of a lot of regular and normal people but at the same time Arco is also a club that you know um, it's um, they've had like many prime ministers have been supporters of Arco but many Swedish rappers as well uh, their club hymn is sung by some punk rockers uh, some pop artists some some rappers again so it's a very like diverse and um, diverse and multifaceted club which still has this reputation of being a symbol for the um, yeah for the central power in Stockholm with the ties historically to the country's elite and with the ties to the football association it sounds like in many ways the number one club in town at least as it's itself understanding right it's a club for the masses but also a club that's very well connected in the elites with all the political swings throughout history that come with that right The second team that understands itself as the team of all of Stockholm and also has excellent connections, particular to upper classes, uh, to middle class, is uh, Djurgården. Sometimes they become known as kind of the posh team. I'm not quite sure if that's always true, given the masses of following that they have as well. There certainly is a very healthy middle class following across the city for Djurgården as well. What sets them apart? They're founded barely a month after our cause. So those two have been twins from the beginning. What about them? Yeah, the second team that I think is important to know something about, if you want to like talk about Stockholm football, uh, it's called Djurgården. They play in blue stripes. Since 2013, they share the same stadium as Hammarby. Uh, but for the most part of history, they played at the Stockholm Olympic Stadium. And Djurgården, they are founded just like RIK in 1891. Uh, at the start, they are founded as an association for people who live on a small island called Djurgården. But some years after founding, founding, I'm not sure which year, they have a merger with a Stockholm team located in the central part of the city. And they gain bigger stomping grounds, you could say. And they are like, from, from the get-go, they are considered to be like a you know, middle class or people's club. Um, there are some depictions, at least historically, of how uh, players who played for Jürgen and went on trial with Aiko were disappointed with the fact that they had to, like, use formal titles and speak in a certain manner when visiting Aiko, who at the time were seen as the, um, you know, the more established, more aristocratic club. Uh, and this reputation will change later on in the 20th century. The clubs will kind of, like, switch places um identity wise but yeah for in the first i think first half of the 20th century you were in the more seen as like you know a middle class club um they um, how to put it they um are not that far behind like football wise from aqua they win uh, the swedish swedish league in 1901 uh, the league at the time does not have championship status but still it's a good performance um, but they don't really historically have the same connections to the country's elite as Argo does, which means that they have some problems like, you know, um, just gaining enough financial security to have a team continuously in the top flight. And even though they win some league titles in the 1920s, um, they stay a bit behind Argo up until the 1950s. And 
I think like the rivalry with Ajaxo is very important to understand to understand this club properly. It's not a rivalry that's grounded in like um, I don't know religion or class identity or different uh, geographical neighborhoods. Um, none of this is that important to the rivalry between Ajaxo and Djurgården. It's basically just a football rivalry between the two biggest clubs of the city. Um, Djurgården are um, quite early on, like you have some depictions of fights between sports of Djurgården and Ajaxo taking place in 1916 or 17, I think. Um, they are, yeah, like they have this, they are created in opposition towards Ajaxo uh, identity-wise. And as mentioned, like for a long time, they have a reputation and self-image of being a people's club. Um, but they are still located since from 1937 and onwards in Stockholm Olympic Stadium, which itself is located in Östermalm, this posh neighborhood. And this kind of becomes a problem for Jogodan because this, this neighborhood experienced a rapid decline in population as is most parts of central Stockholm from the 50s and onwards. So you wouldn't have to try and find another base for their support, another base for like their, you know, just youth development. And they does it quite successfully. Um, and it should be underlined that while the football team played in a uh, posh district, the hockey team played in uh, in Johannes Hoa, which is a like working class district to the south of the city. So it's kind of unfair, this uh, identity, like this, this upper class identity they're often uh, blamed for, or I don't know. Um, All right, you mentioned hockey team now. I need to briefly insert here. All these clubs are polysport clubs. So they're member-owned, and while soccer is by far their biggest sport. Hockey is very important to them as well, and they all do field hockey teams and teams in other sports as well. So that's important to understand here. These aren't purely soccer clubs. All right, continue. Um, but something happens like, yes, you know, with this geographical location in the, um, uh, with regards to Jogodan in the public eye, um, in like the 1980s, uh, in the Reagan Thatcher era, Sweden is still ruled by the social democrats, but this whole Jupi culture and this finance culture um, becomes very present in the areas which, where you wouldn't play. And they, at the time, start to refer to themselves as Stockholm Stolte at the part of Stockholm. Um, they try and like build some, I don't know, networks uh, consisting of uh, business people and, and so on. And kind of like um, from the 80s and onwards, you can see a more conscious effort uh, in Djurgården to build strong uh, strong networking, but it takes until like the um, the first years in the 2000s for them to really like gain uh, sporting success. But they are they're a brilliant side in like from 2000 to 2006 or seven. Um, they have uh, they adopt a 433 based on the Ajax model, and they promote very a lot of youth players and they. Uh, they continuously play in European Cups. So I think, and since then they've had some like rougher years, but now are still an established side and have a very good team. So I think it's fair to sum you will up as like, um, to, to a part unfairly seen as a bourgeois team. Um, mostly they are just a team that has had a lot of like, highs and lows, some decades where they were very successful, some decades where they haven't been successful at all. Um, and, um, you know, a team that sees itself as representative of all of Stockholm, which I think comes from this, 
this locate this geographical location of their stadium to the south of the city. Um, um, no, sorry, uh, the geographical location of the, of the Olympic Stadium in the eastern part of the city, which experienced a population decline and which forced Jürgen to find their sport elsewhere. Which brings us to the third one here, and that is Hammarby, also as your garden, fairly close historically to the center of Stockholm. I call it the farthest away up in the north. But Hammarby, as you've already said, always maintains the flavor of a regional club from a working class part of Stockholm, and that is basically the, the southern third of the city. Hammarby and Djurgården have to share a stadium now. It's one of these newer plastic-ish arenas. I've been in there, not for a soccer game, but for a Bundy game. Um, wasn't overly impressed. These two pretty distinct teams now share a stadium. What does that do to to both? And how is Hammarby coping with this new neighbor in their territory in the south? Yeah, like regarding the, how the clubs uh, deal with sharing the stadium, I think it's been painful for both of them. Uh, for Hammarby, it was like present in the um, you know eyes of their supporters that they would have to change stadiums at some points from like the late nineties and onwards because the old stadium, Sade Stadion, was simply not um, uh, yeah was simply not good enough, was simply not big enough, not comfortable enough. So they had a hard time attracting sponsors, attracting regular match-going people. And like the ideas of either rebuilding it completely or building a new stadium close to their historical home was, um, yeah, was a present among Hamburg supporters like very early on, I think. Um, but I don't think they imagined that they would have to share the stadium with Jogodan, which kind of like blew new wind into the sales of the rivalry between Jürgen and Hammarby. I don't think they are like, historically, I, I think Hammarby has had more of a rivalry with AIK. Um I think the same, and the same definitely goes for Jürgen. But this, uh, this stadium move of Jürgen and Hammarby it created, I think, a need among Hammarby supporters to like, you know, uh, claim the ter- claim territory. And uh, for Jürgen, I think it was like, seeing that they see themselves as a club representative of all Stockholm. Um, I think the, uh, you know, uh, the stadium move kind of like made that even more important and they had to show uh, other teams uh, that they too belonged uh, in the stadium which was built, um, which was built in the center part of the city. I should have mentioned it more clearly early on. The, the stadium that they shared, the Teletubb Arena, is in the southern part of the city, very close to Hamburg's uh, former now torn down home. Just idag är jag stark Just idag mår jag bra Jag förs framåt av kraftiga vindar Just idag är jag stark Just idag mår jag bra Jag har tro på mig själv På min sida Jag har väntat så länge På just den här dagen Stadium moves always mean Loss of identity Change of identity And we've had that theme before, and I'm sure we'll have it again here as well. It's probably made more bearable in this case by some financial success and also more success on the pitch for both of the teams who moved to the Teletou Arena. Hamabi, whose club anthem we just heard here, by the way, won its first title ever in the club's history. It's a cup title in the new arena two years ago. So yeah, I think like none of them are comfortable with it, but the the stadium was also coincided, coincided with... Um, like some 
um, some really successful seasons for both teams. Hamby won their first cup at the new stadium. Jorgen has won a, uh, one Swedish championship and one cup at the new stadium. They made the Conference League group stage for the first time in their history um, last season at Teletu Arena. So both teams, like, you know, uh, both teams have had some pretty, like, nice times uh, at the stadium. And I don't know how to put it, like, um, I think it has become apparent for them um, since moving that the stadium was needed, like... um, had had both of the teams stayed in their old uh, stadiums, if they had been allowed to stay, uh, I'm not sure they would have attracted as large crowds as they do now. They would not have attracted as much sponsors as they do now. That that one's clear. And the perspectives for success on the pitch would have been much more difficult. So, yeah, it, it's an uncomfortable move. But I think they now, nine years uh, with it being reality, both of them are slowly getting to grips with it. But... Uh, it has really made the rivalry more intense. And yet it's still only one of the three in the city. Thank you so much, Victor, for being a tour guide for us through your city and through its soccer culture. And all the best to you and your work for the future as well. Thank you so much. you so much for listening as well if you have any suggestions for future topic do send me an email it's on the website uh, send me a message on twitter or on facebook and i'll certainly see what i can do in the meantime i'm very grateful if you leave a quick star rating and or subscribe or spread the word to your friends i look forward to hearing each other again in two weeks I'm not going to make any super firm promises, but probably, probably we'll meet again in Zagreb, Croatia, around the time of the Yugoslavian Civil War. Until then, be well. <laughs>